Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your co-host today along with Clarissa Kennedy. Today, we speak with Dr. Chris Van Tolliken, the author of Ultra Processed People. Dr. Chris Van Tolliken is an infectious disease doctor, academic researcher, and popular television presenter, best known for hosting scientific documentaries such as Medicine Men Go Wild, The Doctor Who Gave Up Drugs, and What Are We Feeding Our Children on the BBC and Channel 4. Born in the UK in 1978, Van Tolliken studied medicine at the University of Oxford before completing a PhD in molecular virology at University College London. He went on to work as a doctor with Doctors Without Borders in locations such as rural Africa. Through his broadcasting work, Van Tolliken became increasingly concerned about the impacts of processed and ultra-processed foods on human health. This prompted him to write his best-selling book, Ultra-Processed People, how Modern Food is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. Published in, in this must-read book, examines the science linking ultra-processed foods to problems such as obesity, addiction, and depression. It also explores the environmental impact of industrial food processing and offers solutions to help people and policymakers to make better choices. We at Food Junkies Podcast are especially interested to hear his opinions on how ultra-processed food can make foods highly craveable and addictive, and of course, his ideas on what to do about that. So welcome, Chris. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We're so thrilled that you're joining us. Please tell us a little bit about your own personal story. We'd like to start with the the personal. Like, What inspired you to write ultra-processed people? Do you identify as an ultra-processed food addict? like before the book, and basically just about how the book came about. I guess there's a very personal story and there's a professional story. As a young doctor, I was, I'm an infectious diseases clinician. And so I spent a lot of time when I was specializing, working in very low income settings in Pakistan, in Central Africa, and in Myanmar. And all the kids that I saw die of infections, almost all of them died, not because they were in an environment that was especially dangerous when it came to infection. It wasn't malaria killing them. It was diarrheal disease. And the reason the kids got diarrhea was because their parents were being aggressively marketed baby food that had to be made up with clean water. But these were caregivers with no access to clean water, no no way of sterilizing a teat or a bottle. And, And so the babies were lacking the immune system they should have got from breast milk and they were drinking human feces in, in their water. And that's what was killing them. So that, that gave me a sort of, so, so our problem was not a lack of antibiotics. We had loads of antibiotics, but you can't, you can't save kids with antibiotics if this is their diet. And so that gave me a, a kind of my, my academic interest switched from molecular virology and studying things in test tubes to studying the commercial determinants of how, how big companies, pharma, gambling, alcohol, tobacco, and food, how they affect human health in good ways and in bad ways, but mainly in bad ways. And then you asked about, am I like a recovering food addict? So I, the personal story is my, I've got an identical twin, which is to live with a lifelong weird experiment where you're, you're your own sort of badly controlled lab study where you've got these two genetically identical individuals. And he went and lived in the States at a time of some stress in his life and gained a huge amount of weight. And I think we would both say that we have lived with binge eating and with food addiction at various moments. But you framed it in very nicely. I would say I had the experience the other day of that that once you are addicted, many people report always being in recovery. And I would I was in Toronto and I'd I'd gone for some to do some work there. It was a very short trip. I was jet lagged. I was exhausted. I was working very hard. And at eleven o'clock at night, I found myself wandering past a dim sum restaurant that was still open, and it was cheap dim sum. And it would so it would all have been ultra processed. It's all made in factories. Good dim sum is not ultra processed, of course. Anyway, I wandered in and 
began the binge before realizing I was actually an ex-addict and I couldn't finish it. And so I had to get the guy to put it all in containers and I paid and then walked out with this huge pile of food that I had to, I just disposed of. There was no one around to give it to. So yeah, that's my, so yes, I still at moments desire this stuff. And yes, I've definitely been very addicted. Okay, thank you. That's great. I appreciate you giving the personal touch. Let's get right to the concept of ultra-processed food. So what is ultra-processed food and how is it different than other foods, other commercial foods? So it's very different to processed foods. Humans have been processing our foods for well over a million years. Human diet was invented mainly by women, female scientists who started working on how to manage food in caves and then around open hearths over a million years ago. So human, we have to process our food. Processed food is essential for health. Ultra processing is very different. There's a formal definition housed on the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization website. It's very long. It's 11 paragraphs long, but it boils down to this. If you want to know if something's ultra processed, look at the ingredients list on the pack. And if there's something in there that you don't typically find in a domestic kitchen, like xanthan gum or diacetyl tartaric acid esters of mono and diglycerides of fatty acids, if that's on the ingredients list, it's probably ultra processed. And it's a simple way of describing the industrialized American or Canadian diet, the the Western industrial diet. These are foods made by big corporations for the purpose of growth. So it works very well. People instinctively get what is ultra processed. How is that different than specifically refined carbohydrates or sugars, sugar as in added sugar? So if humans have been adding sugar to food for a very long time, since prehistory, some indigenous and, and remote communities get 10, 20, even 30% of their calories from refined carbohydrate from honey. So sugar is a huge problem in our diet. Sugar drives metabolic disease, it drives weight gain, and it drives tooth decay, which sounds like a small problem. But it, if you've ever had an aching tooth, it is a horrible scourge on the health of of Canadian, American, and British children. Sugar is one of the ways that ultra-processed food harms us. But in general, when we add sugar to our cooking at home, it seems to be much, much less harmful. If you eat a bowl of oatmeal and you put a spoonful of sugar on it, I do this with my kids eat much more oatmeal when I add sugar, but they probably don't overeat it. They just enjoy it a bit more. And if you add sugar to your cereal, it washes over your teeth. And provided you have a glass of water after breakfast, it won't rot your teeth. And it won't drive metabolic disease because you're only going to add two spoonfuls. The sugar that does us real harm is the sugar in candy, those gums that get stuck between our teeth and rots our teeth all day. It's the sugar in cola where if you look at a cola, people listening to this are going to have a can of cola handy. And if you look at the ingredients, if you're drinking a full sugar cola, is you'll see there's a lot of sugar. There is way more sugar than you'd ever add to a glass of tea or coffee, to a mug of tea or coffee, nine nine spoonfuls. And the only reason you can put up with that amount of sugar is because they also add acid, phosphoric acid, citric acid, and they also add very bitter caffeine. And so the sugar is harming you because by ultra processing it with these other ingredients, the companies are able to get you to eat much more sugar than you would normally find palate. The truth is, I think none of us, we can all live with a big bowl of white sugar on the table and very few of us eat it with a spoon from the bowl. It's not sugar as a single molecule is not enormously addictive. It is one of the ways that ultra-processed food manufacturers do drive addiction to ultra-processed foods. Okay, it's the ultra-processing of the food itself, which then allows you to eat an abundance of sugar that is the crux of the problem here. So I'll get, this is, we're going to get deep into the physiology quite quickly, but here is more or less the science of the addiction. In ultra-processed food, there is no addictive molecule, usually, sometimes there's caffeine, but there's generally no addictive molecule you can point at. What there are three substances that give you physiological reward. So these are fat, protein, and sugar. When you eat these molecules in the context of a traditional diet, they are bound up in quite dilute form. So let's think of a steak on sourdough bread, okay? It's full of fat, there's loads of protein, and there's lots of carbohydrate, refined carbohydrate in that sourdough. But the steak is full of water. The sourdough bread is incredibly chewy, and you're going to eat this little bit by little bit. And the delivery of the rewarding molecules, the fat, the sugar, and the the protein to the gut is quite slow. And then when they're in the gut, the particle size is big. So your gut has to do a lot of work to break down 
the steak. In ultra-processed foods, if we compare that steak on steak sandwich on sourdough bread, it's going to take you a long time to eat it. You're going to be chewing, very slow release. If you get a, a, a burger from a fast food chain on a brioche bun, the brioche bun will be will actually have just sugar in it rather than flour. It will be very sugary. The mince of the beef has been ground up, so it's incredibly fine, and it's going to be mixed with emulsifiers and stabilizing agents. And the delivery of the sugar from the bun and the protein from the beef and, and, and the fat that it's all fried in is way quicker. And we think it's the speed of delivery that is one of the crucial things about driving addiction. It's the incredible softness of the food. This seems to be a common feature. It's actually, this is not my work, by the way. I really should say this is Ashley Gerhardt, Nicola Vina, Tara Fazzino. There's a, a big list of authors that you'll be very familiar with. In fact, the striking thing about much of this literature is that all of the authors on the papers are women. And it is a cohort of female scientists that have absolutely driven the molecular, genetic, psychiatric, psychological, neuroscientific work on all of this. And Ashley Gearhart is one of the, the main authors on this. And she points out, I think this is so powerful, that there are plenty of molecules that we think of as being addictive. Nicotine is a good example. That when you have it in slow release form, in traditional tobacco products, when you chew tobacco, when you have it in gum form, it's not very addictive. When you have it in an ultra-processed, industrially modified form, in a cigarette with accelerants, that one of the big things about the, the class action lawsuits against the cigarette companies is they exposed that the tobacco companies knew they were making rapid nicotine delivery devices. And it appears to be a common feature of many addictive substances. It's the delivery of the molecule that is much more important, the speed of delivery that is more important than the molecule itself. So we see this with like methylphenidate is used to treat kids with attention problems. It's not addictive. In fast release form, methamphetamine, yes. it suddenly becomes incredibly addictive. And there yeah. are loads of other examples. I'm an addictions doctor, so I see that for sure, that when you smoke something, it's the one of the fastest ways to the brain. And so there you go. So let me just ask you then, would, would just it's a slight off the cuff, but it relates to this. What about alcohol then? Alcohol being fermented sugar and a, a huge amount, and because it's completely processed, wouldn't that support the argument? That's why it, um, alcohol can be so addictive. Yeah. So uh, again, I suppose that there are two things here. There seem to be many communities that have lived with a tradition of alcohol fermentation for a long time. Broadly in Northern Europe, the way we protected ourselves against cholera was we brewed weak beer. And that's how we cleaned water because cholera mm -hmm. and other bacteria die at quite low alcohol concentrations. And those communities seem to have much lower rates of addiction to very weak solutions of alcohol. In general, when, and, and this is, I'd be curious if this is your clinical experience, um, people who live with alcohol addiction will, of course, drink any alcohol, but it, they tend to favor the high strength versions, either the wine or the very high strength beer or, or shots, ideally. And it's the slow release, the, the session beer that's 2.5%, that seems to have a much less a lower addictive potential. And, but then we also see with communities, societies that had a tradition of boiling water, so the tea-making societies, for example, of East Asia, that instead of fermenting things, they did much more boiling. And they have a very different set of genes for processing alcohol. And so they maybe uh, are more vulnerable. And this is very true of indigenous communities in the States and Canada more vulnerable to lower concentrations of alcohol. There are some drugs I would say that are, what would you say is the most addictive drug? We have a list of nicotine, alcohol, cocaine, methamphetamine, and the opiates. But when we look at the data, I think, well, the people, all of those drugs, not everyone becomes addictive. The highest rate of transferring from use to addiction is probably 10 to 20% of people who try some of these drugs will become addicted. And we see exactly the same thing from ultra-processed food. So I think the case that ultra-processed food is for the people who live with addiction, it is as addictive, it is as hard to quit as opiates or cocaine or, or cigarettes. I think those data are very persuasive to me. I, I don't know if that's your clinical experience. Yeah, I, well, that's it. I totally agree with you. And and the thing about uh, people that when they drink beer, they're drinking a lot of beer. Like the ones who are that I see in clinic, they're like 24 beer a day type of people. So yes, it takes them a, a lot longer to get drunk, but it's like the, the grazer versus the binge eater. And we have the grazer addicted people in our practice as well. It, it's, yeah. 
And at college, I remember this at medical school, that a lot of a lot of us lived with, I would say, a problem relationship with alcohol. Maybe, maybe it didn't quite meet the threshold for addiction. And there was a, a, a tradition or a culture of drinking pints of fairly weak beer. That's our national drink in the UK. It's three or four percent. But you, you down the pint as quickly as you possibly can. And that there was this idea we'd have races to see who could drink the beer the quickest. So always getting that molecule into the system. And the other intriguing thing, I've been meaning to ask an addiction scientist about this. So if you don't mind me asking you a question, we are reporting new addictions to drugs that we've never thought have been addictive. So one of these is an anti-emetic drug called cyclozine. Now, my wife is pregnant and she's been using cyclozine because she's had very bad morning sickness. But we're seeing patients who report grinding up these anti-emetic drugs and snorting them, so getting much quicker, getting the drug into the brain much quicker and getting high off it. And now these very benign drugs that we give to kids, we give them to all kinds of people, suddenly do have a street value. They are being abused. I don't really like that term. They, they are being used for getting high rather than for treating nausea. Have you experienced any of these sort of new drugs coming up? Oh, absolutely. So uh, it, it is exactly what you said. You're essentially making a drug that's fairly benign, super refined, ultra processed by crushing it up, by injecting it. So it's when you talk about the speed of entry to the brain, I always say that the two issues about uh, addiction are dose, the poison is in the dose, or I think that's, yeah and how how quickly it goes to the brain. So yes, you can make a drug that's an anti-seizure drug like gabapentin for example, fairly benign into a drug of abuse on the street. So yes, it's and sugar is a great illustration. I'm so glad that you made that connection because the sugar in an apple, people say, "Can I eat fruit?" Of course you can eat fruit as long as you eat the fruit a- along with the sugar in the fruit. So yeah, you had it you hit it right on. That is intriguing. And yes, I had a patient this morning who was seeking a lot more gabapentin yes. than it was, it was. And that's a drug that we've had for a very long time that is, we've not really thought of that as a very addictive drug until quite I recently, know. I would say. I, yeah, I, I got to tell you, it is major on the street. It, it has street value. You can buy it on the street. But let's get back to the, the food issue. So what I hear you saying is it's not these specific ingredients. They might actually be okay if they were in their natural form. It's the ultra processed piece. So beyond just the addictive element, what is it about ultra processed? food that affects our health badly. So it's not specifically the fats or the, or the sugars, but the ultra-processed nature of them. Okay. First of all, so when I look at this, when I'm trying to persuade policymakers, and the evidence of this is overwhelming, is the first question is, are we sure that this does harm our bodies? Or could it just be that this is cheap food eaten by people who struggle with other disadvantages, alcohol intake, poverty, and so on? So the evidence is really good from very good prospective studies. We've got around 80 very big data sets and probably more than 2,000 papers in total showing that ultra-processed food doesn't just lead to weight gain and obesity. It also causes, and in my view, we have met the threshold for causality. So I don't say is associated with, I say it causes dementia, anxiety, depression, many forms of cancer, metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, and early death from all causes, as well as weight gain and obesity, also hypertension. It's a very long list. It's the same list, really, that smoking cigarettes is associated with or causes. So we're sure it is doing harm. There is some blurring around the edges. Are we certain that every single product in the hundreds of thousands of ultra-processed products sold around the world, every single one is harmful? Are they all equally harmful? No, almost certainly not. But this is the way of describing food that has the most evidence. How is it driving all these harms? I think there's a kind of laundry list of, but then there's one overarching principle. So the specifics are it's soft and it's energy dense. And this means you eat calories at an incredibly high rate. So this is the main way it drives excess weight gain. We know that the reason it's energy dense is because if you take it like a really fatty steak, you might think, oh, that's an unhealthy food. It's very wet. All of the protein and the fat is diluted by water. So calories per gram is quite low. If you get popcorn, for example, flavored popcorn, it feels light, fluffy. There's no, there's nothing there. But the energy density per gram is way higher than steak, than even the fattiest, most marbly delicious ribeye. So energy density, and and the reason for that is the popcorn is dry. Almost all ultra-processed food is bone dry. And that is because you have to extend shelf life. Shelf life is really important for keeping the cost down. So we've got softness and energy density, increased energy intake. 
Then we've got all these molecules that lie to us. So the best studied are the artificial sweetness or the non-nutritive sweetness, even the natural ones. There are no really natural ones, but the natural ones do the same thing. When you put sweet taste on the tongue, it's not, you don't, you haven't evolved taste receptors for fun and amusement. You've got an incredibly sophisticated sense of taste and smell. And it's about warning your body what is coming. Is sugar coming? Is fat coming? Is protein coming? Is it, are there any toxins on their way? How much are your bitterness receptors set off? If you put sweet taste on the tongue and the sugar never arrives, that seems to generate a huge amount of metabolic stress. The old theory was that you would have sweet on the tongue from, let's say, saccharin or aspartame or acesulfame. That would cause your body to release. Insulin would lower your blood sugar, and then you'd feel hungry and go and eat more of other stuff. That was the old theory about why these products don't gain, make, why they don't help you lose weight. It seems from a very big, robust study published in the journal Cell this summer that paradoxically, when you put these artificial sweeteners in the mouth, lots of them seem to drive your blood sugar up. And we don't really understand anything about why this is happening. It may be because it's very stressful. Your body wants to make accurate predictions about the world. And when it can't, that's, that causes a metabolic stress. We know the most about the artificial sweeteners. We've then got all the gums that have replaced fats and the modified starches in yogurts. And then we've got things like monosodium glutamate, guanolate, inosinate, these umami flavors, none of which is traditional when you add them in chemical form. None of them are traditionally used in any national cuisine. There's a, there's an argument mounted by some commentators that critiquing monosodium glutamate is in some way being stigmatizing Asian food. And that, that's completely incorrect. The, the very best Chinese, Japanese, and East Asian food has no added monosodium glutamate. It's naturally occurring in lots of things. But again, it's a bit, it's a bit like the ultra-processing of the sugar. When you add it in supranormal volumes, you seem to get this very delicious taste that makes it hard to stop eating. Again, the umami should say proteins on its way. If you're eating the umami on a Pringle and all that arrives in your gut is modified rice starch, that may be one of the reasons that why when you pop, you can't stop. So we've got the energy density, the softness, the flavor, we've got flavor enhancers. Then there's like flavorings, texturants, emulsifiers. There's a long list of other additives and properties that we have good evidence are driving lots of harms, the plastics, the phthalates, the bisphenols. But the real truth is what industry, what the food industry, the companies that make this food, what they want you and I to do now is have a big argument over how sure are we about the emulsifier data. And that was all done in rats. And actually, it was polysorbate 80 and carboxymethylcellulose. It maybe doesn't apply to the lesser thins from soy so much. You know, that's the argument they want to have with us. The truth is that you can't, because what, what they want is to be able to say, this one thing is the problem with ultra-processed food, so we will fix it. If polysorbate 80 is an emulsifier is the problem, we'll replace it with a better emulsifier. If modified cornstarch is an issue, we'll modify a different starch. We'll replace it with tapioca starch. The truth is that what I've discovered from speaking to a huge number of scientists at very big food companies is that the, the problem is the way the foods are developed. They are all developed so that they are extremely hard to stop eating. And broadly, they just do A-B testing where they group get a group of people like us. They've got cereal box A and then cereal formulation B. It's the same cereal, but they've just added a different amount of salt or slightly different amounts. If we all eat box B quicker and we eat more of box B than we do of box A, that's the one that goes on the shelf. And they do this with every single aspect of every single food, from the emulsifiers to the flavorings to the colorings to the texture to the font on the box to the color of the cartoon animal in the ad and the jingle in the ad. It's all part of ultra-processing. And what we know now is that the purpose of the whole set of industrial processes that make up ultra-processing is profit. Now, the food industry want to claim that they are, they do this thing called, have you heard of stakeholder capitalism? So we care about our shareholders. We're also deeply concerned about plastic pollution, child labor, all kinds of environmental issues, carbon, and, and of course, our customers' health. So we care about it all. But yes, we do have some shareholders, but don't worry about them too much. So I recently published an analysis with some economists in Australia, where we just used their own data. And we asked the simple question, when the food companies have money, what do they send? When, ultra -pro when the biggest six ultra-processed food companies have money, do they spend it on combating child labor? Do they spend it on making a healthier product portfolio? Do they spend it on paying their workers more? No. What they do is they do share buybacks. They buy back their own shares 
they boost the equity value, and that satisfies their owners, or they pay out the money in dividends. So we can show using the company's own financial metrics that all they care about it's is their profit. owners. It's, yeah. Sorry. Anyway, that was a rant, but you that's know, okay. That's, yeah. It's a, it's a rant that we share, so that's great. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, we're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. In honor of the giving holiday season, Sweet Sobriety wanted to share our upcoming free 12-week foundations module workshop starting Fridays, January 5th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, hosted by Molly Painshop. Each session will be an hour and a half, and you will get professional coaching around all the module topics, including understanding ultra-processed food addiction and mindful eating, abstinence and withdrawal, craving and recovery management, cross-addiction, hope and resilience, distress intolerance, addressing thoughts and feelings, stress management, emotional eating, building self-compassion, moving toward body neutrality, and spirituality. There are multiple videos, exercise, downloads, and personal writing reflections for each module. We walk you through the topics in the order they usually show up when we are treating food addiction with private clients we work with. We jam-packed every module with the most current evidence-based best practices and the latest scientific information we have found in the field of food addiction and eating disorders. This workshop will be free of charge to anyone who purchases or has purchased our foundations modules, which are based on our treatment audit paper published in Frontiers in Psychiatry. When you purchase the modules for $200 US, going up to 300 in the new year, you will have automatic access to them and will receive a Zoom link in January inviting you to our free workshop. If you miss the group or are working at that time, we will be recording them so you'll have access to them forever. This workshop includes lifetime access to the foundations modules, all future updates, and lifetime access to the workshop recordings for members who purchase the modules. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. Let's get back to the food, the processed food bit. So how does it affect the gut biome is something that's being talked about more in in the press. How does it relate specifically to concerns about the gut biome? What, what is happening to us, our gut? The biome, the microbiome, we, we know far less about it than is written about it. But mm. the one thing we are certain of is we depend on it, it for life. And it is it's important in, I would say, three main ways. First of all, We've got this tube going from our mouth to our butts that if we don't fill it with friendly bugs, it will very quickly be full of bugs that will do us harm. So our microbiome is a way of occupying the territory with bugs that we negotiate a compromise with. And what that what those bugs do is they eat the fiber in our diets that we can't digest, and then they crap out these things called short-chain fatty acids, these little volatile molecules. And those molecules seem to be really important for our hearts and our brains and our immune systems. So we depend on these trillion or so bacteria for so much about our health. If you screw up your microbiome, you mess up your entire body. And we are increasingly sure that many of the additives cause significant and harmful changes to the balance of bacteria that live inside us. Maltodextrins, the modified starches, these are carbohydrates, these are indigestible carbohydrates that we've never encountered before in our evolutionary past. Many of them don't exist in nature. And so these are then fermented not by the bugs that we want to look after, but by bugs that that can then start to take over the gut. Xanthan gum. We don't know that xanthan gum is harmful, but it certainly supports bacteria that don't otherwise exist in the human gut. They're, they're not normal residents. If you go to populations that have never eaten xanthan gum, they have completely different bugs. And then we have things like the emulsifiers and the non-nutritive sweeteners. They cause big alterations. The emulsifiers particularly, emulsifiers molecules that allow you to mix fat and water. So your washing up detergent is an emulsifier. And emulsifiers happen occur throughout nature. Egg yolk is also an emulsifier. So is mustard. That's why you use them in dressings. But the synthetic emulsifiers that are added to so much ultra-processed food, they are in everything. They're in 
your breads, your sodas, your confectionery, your salad dressings, they're in absolutely every product you buy. And it seems like they are acting roughly like detergents in the gut. So you eat them or you drink them and they scrub out the microbiome, they thin the mucus layer. And the my, this is, it's so harmful in so many ways. One of the, aside from then you lose the immune benefit and the, and the protection from the microbiome. The other thing is you get this leaky gut. A major problem in the modern world is this rise of cancers, particularly gastrointestinal cancers in the young. And it may be that the gut leaking fecal bacteria to the liver, because all the blood drains from the gut to the liver, it may be that is one of the engines of this epidemic of young gastrointestinal cancers. That's just so fascinating. Can I just jump in with this mechanism that you're talking about with processed food in the gut? Do the new medications like the GLP-1s, which also say that they alter appetite, hormonal aspects, is there an interplay there that we need to worry about, especially new meds? Yeah. So the the GLP-1 agonists, I think of them like developing lung cancer treatments in the 1970s. It's, it's great. We do need some treatments for lung cancer while everyone is still smoking because lots of people are getting lung cancer. They won't work very well. They'll be very expensive and they should never distract us from trying to stop everyone from smoking and from regulating the tobacco industry. So these drugs are not to be condemned. They're to be celebrated. But one of the really important things is that all of the evidence around ultra-processed food The obesity is not the driving force of the other harms. In other words, if you are someone who's lucky enough to not gain weight on a high ultra-processed food diet, and lots of people don't, probably 40% of people maintain a healthy body weight whilst eating a very high UPF diet, you are still at risk of all the other harms though. So you just because you're not gaining weight doesn't mean the emulsifiers aren't putting you at an increased risk of gastrointestinal cancer. It doesn't mean that the non-nutritive sweeteners aren't messing up your metabolic system. So yeah, the main problem it seems to me is that even if these drugs stop you gaining weight, if you continue eating the diet you're eating, if they're used in low-income settings where people have to continue to eat this harmful food, uh, you're still going to get all the other problems. Okay, great. So can we? that was fascinating about the biome. But what about mental health? How does ultra-processed food, not the specific ingredients of sugar, I know about the, uh, the dopamine excess and addiction, but how does it affect mental health other than that? So I think there are sort of t- two main ways we could imagine it working. We, we don't know very much about these mechanisms. The food does contain molecules that we know are active directly on the brain. So glutamate is a neurotransmitter, for example. And some of the flavorings and the colorings we know also have effects on the brain. And we, it's astounding. We just do not study this stuff. So there's one study published in The Lancet on some of the, the coloring agents in the UK. So we do have a warning label in the UK. But the flavors, particularly in the States, not regulated by even the FDA, which does very little regulation in the first place. So we basically don't know, but we think some of them, there's good reason to think they act directly on the brain. So some of this may be direct brain effect. A lot of it may be to do with the fact that this is food that drives weight gain and inflammation. So you may get direct brain inflammation, or it may just be that you feel really bad. So I I went as, because I studied this food, I went on a diet that was 80% ultra processed food for a month as a pilot patient in a much bigger study, which we're now running. So we just collected data from me to see what variables we should measure in a bigger study. And the main thing I found was that I got very old in the course of the month. So I ached. I didn't sleep well. There was a vicious cycle of the food's very salty, so you're dehydrated. So if you're a man in your mid-40s and you drink a pint of water before you go to bed, you're going to be up three or four times peeing. Now, that's going to make you tired. So the fourth time I'd get up to pee at night, I'd find myself in front of the fridge eating more because now I was asleep and I was exhausted. And then be tired all the next day, so I'd eat even more of the food. It gives you piles It gives you because it constipates you because it's low in fiber. So there was a, a kind of a, all these different knock-on synergistic effects where, where it's hard to know, is it the sleeplessness driving the anxiety or is it the anxiety driving the excess eating? But I think the vicious cycle is very real. Does that, what do you think of that? This is all yeah. up for grabs because we don't, I don't think we, I think also trying to pin down the mechanism is much less important than going, 
we're pretty sure now this food does cause anxiety, depression. Uh, for sure. And and if you're up and down in that way, you, you mentioned the stress response when you're um, anticipating food and there's that mismatch. So yes, absolutely. You know what? We want to ask about uh, policy stuff, but I want to just pin you down before we move on to that. Do you feel, I heard you say a little earlier, that um, a, a sugar may not be addictive if it were in its um, just a, a few t- teaspoons that you throw into your tea. So do you feel that if we moved away away from ultra-processed food that this phenomenon of, of sugar addiction and food addiction might actually wane or and maybe even that some people could get away with just having sugar once in a while like in a cookie that they made themselves I'm gonna I'm gonna sidestep the question I'm, no I'm gonna confine my answer to, to how I understand the data what the original team in Brazil who came up with the definition of ultra-processed food noticed was that buying sugar and buying cooking oil, were signs of health because it was an indication wow. that a household was cooking at home and that the sugar, okay. their, their original observation was that sh- it was the sugar and the fat and the oil in the ultra-processed products that seemed to be the problem. Now, all the epidemiological data subsequently, so that the big studies going, does ultra-processed food drive weight gain? One of the really important questions that the scientists have been answering, is it the ultra-processing or is it the fat, the salt, and the sugar that's driving? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's an so, important question because we're trying to define, should we call this ultra-processed food addiction or sugar addiction? So I, I would, so all of those studies made very robust adjustments for salt, fat, and sugar and fiber and other things. And in almost every single adjusted model, what they found is that the effect remained the same in both significance and magnitude. And we saw the same thing in Kevin Hall's randomized control trial in the States. He fed these volunteers two diets, unprocessed and ultra-processed, matched for salt, fat, sugar, fiber. And he saw the same thing, that in spite of the diets being nutritionally equal, it was the ultra-processed diet that drove the weight gain. So my proposition to people who say sugar is addictive is to say, or is sugar, even if someone says it's fatty, salty, sugary foods that are the problem, I would say if you just get lard and you mix in sugar and salt, it is disgusting and no one will eat it and it will not be addictive to anyone. I just don't know of anyone who does that. There are maybe in extreme cases, you do see odd eating behaviors, but broadly the, the, the addiction that I think most of us live with is an addiction to, yes, the fat and the sugar are the molecules that are driving the reward, but it's when you texture them and you add flavoring and colorings and uh, an ad and a jingle and all those other processes, that is what I feel drives the addiction. So I would say the data support the idea that people just don't binge on even relatively fatty, salty, sugary food they make at home. This is These are very small data sets, but some data by some papers by Agnes Ayton, who's the chair of the Royal College of psychiatrists eating disorders faculty here they did it they did a bit of a they just had some retrospective data but a hundred percent of the foods that people binge on in their analysis were ultra processed yeah i I think it's fair for sure that the ultra processed food because it's much more palatable etc but we do chrissy uh, i know that you're going to agree with me we do see people on the extreme end because that's the people we draw and maybe they're not eating lard and salt and sugar, but they're eating pretty weird stuff that we, no, somebody else would not eat. But we're at the extreme end, and it makes a call for food addiction syndrome, which has different stages. And we're, we see the end stage. Yeah, I really, I'm really interested in that. That's why I don't. I've remained a little bit agnostic on sugar. Like I'm not a. I don't feel the solution to this problem lies in everyone going keto or or banning sugar. And I do. I strongly support sugar taxes. But sugar taxes without also taxing non-nutritive sweeteners, I think have, I don't think we're seeing much benefit. So I think sugar is a huge problem, but it is, if if we only deal with sugar, then I think we're going to be missing, I think we're going to be missing a, a big driver of ill health. And generally encouraging people to cook at home, make tasty food at home. If you use a bit of sugar to do that, I think for many people that will be okay. But I would really respect your clinical experience before. I've got to be very careful here. I try and give no one advice ever. Like I'm not a, I'm not an eating disorders clinician. I'm not a food addiction clinician. I'm not even a food addiction scientist. I'm a, I study nutrition. I'm an infection clinician. 
I don't have advice for anyone, but my reading of the data is for policy, looking at in a way of regulating industrial food is going to be the important thing to add on to the sugar legislation. Yes. Yeah, so can you talk to us a bit about that? Because I think you highlighted how we are getting lost in it, where it's like this chemical versus this chemical. And even in the real food world, it's the vegans against the keto demonizing. And that's all noise. And we know they're not going to stop making ultra processed food. They did didn't stop making alcohol. They still open casinos. Cigarettes are still widely available. What is the policy solution for this? And what do you think we need to do? I think it's really simple. The first thing you've got to do, and I, I, I spoke to a, a colleague at the World Health Organization last week who was very clear about this. I completely agree. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to stick a warning label on harmful food. Now, how you define that harmful food actually what you have to, the Pan-American Health Organization probably has the best definition, which is a mixture of calorie density, high fat, high salt, high sugar, and non-nutritive sweeteners. And if you use that, those kind of four things to define your unhealthy food, that sweets up 90 to 95% of ultra-processed products. And then you use black hexagons for each one of those problems. So we've now got good data from Chile and Colombia that when you put a black hexagon on a product and you remove the cartoon character, give me, you remove the cartoon character, kids ask their parents to stop buying those products. Mm-hmm. So, so it's really simple. I have a question. Do you think then that ultra-processed food addiction needs to be qualified in the international classification of diseases and the DSM before a warning label will be applied or anyone will actually take it serious? Does it need to be a qualified adi- a substance use disorder before that happens? That's an amazing question. No, I, I look, I think it should be because I think the evidence is very good. You are the experts here. My understanding of how you diagnose an addiction is there are all kinds of different systems, but you broadly sit down with a human being and you ask them a bunch of questions. And if they answer five out of six or six out of nine or whatever your list is, they tick the boxes, then they meet the threshold for addiction. And you look at their circumstances of their life, and this is how we diagnose it. We don't take a blood test. We don't put people in a scanner. And when you ask people those questions, whether you use the Yale Food Addiction Questionnaire or whether you substitute the word ultra-processed food for alcohol in an alcohol addiction questionnaire, a good number of people meet the threshold. So I feel like this is, that should happen, and that will be very useful once we recognize ultra-processed food addiction I think the thing, and I'm slightly thinking this on the fly, but the thing you're revealing is once we recognize that, it's an incredibly powerful tool to go, now you've got to regulate this stuff. Now, the complexity, here is here is the complexity. The research definition of ultra-processed food, the basically, if it's got some weird ingredient, then it's ultra-processed, that won't work for legislation. So I think the most important step is the warning labels because it forces you to refine your legislative definition, i.e. to say, look, the harmful products is everything that has at least one black hexagon. And it may be that, because you're going to have to define the category of food that people are addicted to, maybe it would work for a clinical definition. I'm going to, I'm going to, I need more, I need a few minutes to work that through. I think those two things can happen in parallel. Even if we don't acknowledge this food as formally addictive in DSM, I think there's still enough evidence to go, no, we, we can act now. So Chile, Colombia, Argentina, Ecuador, Brazil have all labeled harmful food and they all do it using fat, salt and sugar. There's no sweat. In order to, yes, and then I think you've got your category of food to study, and then I think you could say the that's how you define ultra-processed food, and that allows you to build your clinical diagnosis. But for, for clinical diagnosis, I think the working lab definition works really well, because patients understand it. If you say to someone, are you addicted to the brownies you make at home, or are you addicted to the packet store-bought brownie with soy lecithin in it? People get the difference and they can answer that question. And that allows you to, to do the research to build the addiction evidence. A question with, about this research, who's funding that research? Because the food industry isn't interest, interested in this and universities are funded by big pharma and food industry. Who's funding this stuff? This is the perennial problem. In order to label, the the reason I put the labeling first is because in order to put a label on food, you have to solve a whole bunch of other problems first. And then the number one problem that you're going to have to solve is the conflicts of interest. 
So in the UK, for example, it's not just our universities that are funded by the food industry. It's also all our food charities. The British Nutrition Foundation, our biggest policy food charity, is majority funded by companies like Coke, McDonald's, Pepsi, Tate & Lyle, the sugar manufacturers, all our supermarkets, on and on and on. Our scientific advisory committee on nutrition half the members declare ongoing financial relationships with ultra-processed food manufacturers. So we have total capture of the environment. And in the UK, we will not put a warning label on a single thing. We don't have any warning labels on anything at the moment. And we won't until those groups are shamed and disgraced into getting rid of people with conflicts. So all of the, when I argue this, what's really helpful is to point at the addiction research and go, there is some research done by a group of scientists at Yale and at Princeton and at McGill. This food is addictive. It's made by companies that used to be tobacco companies. And and so we need to think of the products in that way. And so the addiction research is a very powerful argumentative tool. But and, and it's also powerful because you say you wouldn't take tobacco industry money, so you should not be taking money from Kraft or Pepsi Lay or Coca-Cola or McDonald's or any of the other companies, Nestle, Danone. There's not a very long list. It's 20 companies or so. Or if they do, then they should do it just universally and take money from big food as well and tax it and put it towards treatment and healthcare and governmentally funded programs. Like why is big food separate from those other? I put this argument to the, the, the scientists in the UK. It's quite a small community of scientists who basically brief against me and a few of the other scientists on the other side of the discussion. They're all industry funded. And one of the arguments they say is we've got to get funding from somewhere. And I'm like, yes, but why are you not calling out at government and saying, please fund our food research? Like, you should all be advocates for independent research. And I get, look, I'm running a big ultra-processed food trial at the moment. And we had a long list of companies who were willing to sponsor it who would have hosed money at us, millions of pounds. And we went with a small private foundation, and it sits in a medical research council grant. Fund. We work with our government funding and, our, and, a, and a charity that has no food links. It can be done. Be if you wouldn't, the British Lung Foundation does not take money from British American Tobacco or from Philip Morris. It's very straightforward. You, This is the most important problem of all. It's not how do we define for legislation ultra-processed food. That's relatively easy. It doesn't really matter how you do it. The most important thing is as long as we have conflicts with the food industry, there will be no problem. You cannot profit from creating a problem at the same time as you try and solve it. You, you will always make it worse. I know you know this, but it it's astounding to me the number of people that think that the oil industry can be a partner in climate change, the tobacco industry can be a partner in reducing tobacco sales, that Coca-Cola can help clear up the world's plastic, and that the food companies can all help reduce diet-related disease. It is an impossibility. So what would you say are the most promising areas of research in this ultra-processed field right now that you're paying attention to? So I think the addiction stuff is the most exciting so long as it doesn't get too in the weeds of, of the mechanism, because it's such a useful tool for argument. The, the science is, the jury is in, right? So the UK government is hesitating. Canada, they're actually, the Canadian government's much more into this. Even the American government may put it in their national guidance. Around the world, France, Belgium, Israel, all the countries in South and Central America, like UNICEF has bought this evidence. They don't take any money from UPF manufacturers. So to me, the, the addiction research, the, the, the intriguing research is not trying to unpick all the mechanisms, but somewhat interesting, of course, just as it was interesting to understand exactly how cigarettes cause cancer. The crucial stuff is building a pipeline from laboratories and from clinical studies all the way to either lawsuits or policy change. And so that's what interests me is doing more research for the sake of search, basic science research is that will all be done by food companies. And I have a fairly minimal interest in it. So it's getting better and better population sets, collecting our data in a way that encompasses ultra-processed food so that we have better data, just understanding the health outcomes better and generating evidence to sue companies with. That's that's the exciting stuff. Chris, we're running out of time. So I have one last question and then Chris is going to ask our signature question. But so for the people listening, what is one simple thing that you would like to leave them with? So we're interested in the concept of the addictive nature of these foods. So what would you like to our listeners to end with in terms of a nugget of advice? I'm going to continue to refuse to give advice, but I will tell them <laughs> something. Well, because you guys, if they're listening to you both 
regularly. They don't need my amateur opinion. What I will describe is an experience that happened to me while I was on this very high ultra processed food diet. I was talking to this colleague in Brazil and she kept saying to me, this isn't food, Chris, it's an industrially produced edible substance. And Nicola Vina said a similar thing. She said, if this food wasn't flavored, it would just taste like dirt. It's not food. And after I'd spoken to Nicole and Fernanda, I sat down to eat some, it was some Kentucky fried chicken that night and I couldn't eat it. They'd switch, they'd flick this sort of switch in my brain. And this is something that anecdotally we have some evidence uh, about with tobacco mainly that if you engage, if you stop forbidding something and you engage with a harmful substance and kind of under seek to understand it and seek to understand the motives of the people who make it whilst you consume it, some people do go on this journey from something being desirable to it being disgusting. And my invitation to anyone reading my book is don't try and put this stuff down, eat while you read, because you will only really understand the food if you keep eating it whilst you learn about it. The food is your greatest teacher, but you have to get the food out of its packets, away from the ads, away from the cartoon characters, put it out on a plate and try to eat, eat it like a normal meal. And that's when you start going, oh, this is not living up to my image of it. So that don't forbid it, don't run away from it, engage with it. And mainly, most of all, remember, if you are struggling, and I'm guessing a lot of people who listen to this podcast are struggling, this is not your fault. I have spoken to a tiny fraction of the geniuses that have developed these products, and they work 24 hours a day, seven days a week to make things that you cannot stop eating. And they're very smart and they do it very deliberately and they're paid very well to do it. And they know they're doing it. They all say behind closed doors they're doing it. So if you're struggling, that is why. And don't feel bad. This is not your fault. It's not you. It's the food. So I do have a signature question. And it is, if you could tell yourself something, a younger version of yourself, something about ultra-processed food addiction or just food addiction in general, what would you tell him? I wish that I had learned a decade earlier to stop nagging my brother. So my brother was 25, 30 kilos heavier than me for 10 years. And when he eventually made his decision and did something about this, it, it was because I had stopped nagging him. Essentially for him to, to take action required him to lose an argument with me. And so th that is a lesson that I've internalized with my my patients and I try and really live by it is when we nag people and we scold them and we stigmatize them and we shame them, we drive them further into their addictions. And that that is, I had to learn that the very hard way, but I was the reason I think that he was struggling. And when I really, truly let it go and stopped badgering him, that was when he, is his story to tell, but that's when things really changed for him. Oh. I love that of compassion. Chris, thank you so much for leaving our audience with that. It's beautiful. Thank you so much for this hour. Wonderful. Look, I really appreciate it. And if you don't mind, I'm going to, I'm going to be writing and thinking much more about this in, in the coming years, I'm sure. And I'm going to see you in London. You are. You'll see both of Amazing. us here speaking okay. there too. Okay, great. Look, I'm going to, I'm going to hear you speaking. So let's make sure that we go and have a glass of wine and some cigarettes. No, let's go for a healthy lunch or healthy dinner or something and, and treat our bodies. Chris, Celebrate I'm gonna, joy. I'm going I'm to send you a copy of my book. It's about food addiction. It's a primer on food addiction that you might be interested in. I would really love that. I, I should have read that already. But don't send it. I will buy it. I feel very strongly we must buy each other's book. Okay. I will buy your book. Don't send me a free copy. I can. I should. I will Also, I'll value it more. If I pay for it, I will value it more. I, right. I read the books. Mm. I read the books I buy. Listen, it's so nice to speak to you both. Thank you for, for listening and for sharing it. And I think this is a conversation that's going to be ongoing over the next few years. Great. Thank awesome. you so much. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one -on -one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs>